This morning we'll be continuing in Matthew 25, picking up where we left off last week. Uh, Before we get into this morning's scriptures, though, I think it's important to remember what Jesus has been teaching his disciples up to this point. So Jesus had just got done taking the different Jewish leadership to task, if you remember, uh, inside the temple. And as they were walking out, Jesus tells the disciples that the temple will be completely destroyed, that not one brick will be left upon another. I imagine the disciples walking a few feet behind Jesus and whispering to one another, like, is he for real? Like, does he, does he really mean this beautiful temple, this symbol of, of Israel is going to be torn down? I imagine some of the the other disciples urging Peter and John to go and ask him what he meant by that. So as they walk out, they go to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus starts teaching them about the signs of his return. Remember, they come to him and they ask him what he meant by that. What what is his coming going to be like? What is the coming of his kingdom? What are the signs, and when will it be? And they ask him these questions, and he begins to teach them. And he begins to warn them about false teachers and false signs and told them that the perilous times would come. And as it had been Jesus' way throughout uh, most of his ministry and his way of teaching them, he taught them through many different parables, teaching them that no one would know the hour of his coming, so be ready and alert, for the Master is truly coming back. Two weeks ago, we heard that by faith, We should be prepared for the coming of the Lord. Even if he delays longer than expected, those that belong to him will endure. For when Jesus does return, there will be no second chances for those that refused to be prepared for his coming. Last week we saw by faith that we should be good stewards with the gifts that the Master has given us. That Jesus expects those that are his to faithfully steward what he has so freely given them. And that those that don't, are exposed as hypocrites and cast into that utter darkness, as verse 30 says. We understand that it is not good stewardship and what the master gives that saves, but the faith in the master that gives them. So throughout the Olivet Discourse, we have seen Jesus explain his second coming through an important figure. He uses this time and time again, this central figure, this important figure, first as the owner of a house, then as the bridegroom, then the master over servants. And upon the return of these central figures, it becomes apparent that some of the people are ready for him, but others were unprepared for him to come back. And in each parable, the trio concluded with the evaluation of the people. They were either ready or unready by the key figure. And the returning figure, Jesus, is the sole evaluator of their deeds. In this text this morning, we will see that Jesus concludes this discourse not by using another parable, but instead immediately starts with his coming again, and this time, not as a humble baby born in a humble town amongst the animals, but as the Son of Man in all his glory with all his angels. So verse 31 says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right 
and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did, when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And then the king will answer to them and say, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the, the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into the eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thankful that you would give us signs and warnings of your second coming that we may not be caught unaware and unprepared, Lord. Please prepare our hearts to hear your message this morning, Lord. Please use me and speak through me, Lord. I pray all these things in your blessed and holy name. Amen. So the disciples are saying to Jesus in this passage in Matthew 24 and 25, tell us of your second coming. Tell us about when you set up your kingdom. But see, they don't understand it yet as a second coming. They don't imagine that he's going to go and then come back again. They, they imagine in their minds that what is this going to look like when you, when you write this temple, when you, when you purify your temple, when you come and you usher in your kingdom and you remove Rome, they, they're still in that, that mindset set. They don't see it as a second coming. They can't understand yet that he's going to go away and then come back. So they don't see it yet as his second coming. They want to know what his, what his reign as Messiah will look like and what are the signs so they can, they can look for it and they can be ready. What will happen? They say in verse 3 of chapter 24, and so he answers them and he gives them all kinds of preliminary signs and then it says, the exact moment, no one knows, so everyone needs to be ready. Everyone. Why do you need to be ready? Because when he comes... There will be an irreversible and eternal judgment. 
He doesn't come as, as a savior. He's coming as a king and he's coming as a judge. And in this final climax of his message, verse 31, when he comes, he will come as a judge. And in verse 32, he will separate all the people into two categories, either sheep or goats. The sheep will go into the kingdom and the goats are kept out. We don't know when that's going to happen specifically. Oh, there's going to be signs. But when it happens, it will be too late for any changes then. It's too late to prepare. It's too late to get ready. So the Lord is saying to you now, you should be ready at this moment. Do not wait. He issues this warning to all the nations, meaning that there are none that are not under his authority. There are none that are not going to be judged at this time. Notice in verse 33, he will put the sheep representing the believer on his right. And this is the place of honor. But more importantly, this is a place of inheritance, an inheritance of the kingdom of God. But on his left, he will place the goats representing the unbeliever. And those on his left will receive no inheritance of his kingdom. So why this continuous warning from Christ to be ready that we've seen him do over and over and over again. This warning to be prepared. This warning to be a good steward. This warning to love. This warning to be ready. And the simplest answer is love. Because He loves us. So when He says, when I come, I come as a judge and not as a king. And as a king. I come to determine who is allowed to enter my kingdom. And so even here when the disciples are saying, what is the sign of your coming and when is it going to happen? He ends with a warning that's so typical of his love. And he says, in effect, I want everyone to know the signs. I want everyone to know that I'm coming so that everyone will be ready when it happens. This judgment will separate the sheep from the goat and it comes down to one word and that word is love. Our love is what the king will use to separate us into two groups. Jesus shows us love is not merely a word, but that love is an action, that love is a byproduct, and that love is a confession. So those are the three points uh, today here for the scripture. So the first point, if you're taking notes, is love is an action. And so as I was studying and preparing for this message, uh, I was I was flipping through some some videos on my phone and uh, watched a lot of apologetic videos and somehow I guess uh, the algorithms decided I need to to listen to a lot of Catholic apologists and so I find it interesting to to listen to their beliefs and, and their use of scripture and this one just happened to be on this exact message uh, this Catholic priest was using this scripture of proof as proof text. That salvation is not just by faith alone. That it's faith alone plus works is what this priest was saying. And he was using Matthew 25, specifically 31 through 46, as his proof text. And he was saying that our faith wasn't enough by itself, that there had to be good works that went with our faith. You see Jesus saying it. You have to do this and this and this and this. Works, works. And when you read verse 35 and 36 explicitly, they say, you feed me. You gave me water. You took me in as a stranger. You clothed me. You visited me when I was sick and you came to me when I was in prison. And doesn't that teach salvation by works? 
Isn't he saying you can come to the kingdom because of your philanthropy? You can come to the kingdom because of your basic human kindness? You can come to the kingdom because of all the social action that you were involved in? This can seem rather problematic to the doctrine of salvation through faith alone, right? But that's only if you divorce it from verse 34. Like this priest had so conveniently done, or someone that is reading through this passage not carefully, you can pass right over verse 34. It is God in verse 34 that makes the first action in love extremely clear. He says, first of all, come. And here's the number one point. You who are blessed of my Father. That emphasizes the source of our salvation. You are blessed of my Father. You are entering into the kingdom because of my Father has determined to bless you. It's not your works. It's of my Father and his blessing. Here you have sovereign grace so beautifully expressed Why are they blessed? Because God has predetermined sovereignly to bless you. He has redeemed you out of his sovereign act of love. Verse 34 expresses the essential reality of redemption, salvation, and justification of the blessed. And when he says, come, you are blessed, you who belong to my Father, he says, inherit, inherit which implies something very important. You inherit something because you are born into a family, right? It implies that you belong to the family of God, to which you belong by faith, that you have been adopted as a son or a daughter into the family of God. And so you have an inheritance. You inherit what is yours because by faith you have become a joint heir with Christ. If we look at what Paul taught in Romans 8, so you are the elect by sovereign grace, grace, the chosen to be blessed by the Father. You are the sons and daughters of God. And so you see the source of salvation and you see the gift of salvation given to those who are the children of God. Further, he goes on and says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Again, that it emphasizes the selectivity of salvation. When God prepared the kingdom, it was for you that he prepared it. You were chosen. You were ordained to this. You are those whom the Father destined, designed to love. So you have the source of salvation in the Father's blessing and his desire to bless. You have the reception of salvation and faith that brings you into inheritance. You have the selectivity of salvation and the fact that the kingdom was prepared for those people. It was prepared from the foundation of the world. Now that emphasizes the internal covenant that God made with, with himself to redeem a people selected before the foundation of the world. Who are these people that are going to get in? They are not just people who do good deeds on earth. These are chosen from the foundation of the world by a sovereign God to receive his grace and to be blessed and who responded by faith to become his heirs in the family. When you miss 34 or you purposely omit it, if if you place all the importance on works that's done in verse 36 and 37 without, without 34, you can 
you can miss his grace and his sovereignty and that it's not of you and it's not of your works and it's not of your deeds that brings you to salvation, but it's because God has foreknown you and he has blessed you into his inheritance. Peter expounds on this in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. He says, Blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus. According to who? According to you and your, your works, your mercy? No, he says, according to his great mercy, he, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable. Whose inheritance? His inheritance. It's his, it's not ours. That is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in that last time. This time. This judgment is what he's talking about. This. And so if you, you understand what Peter is doing, and Peter, just like Jesus, put all the emphasis again on the fact that God did it. It's God who blesses. It's by his mercy he chose us and gave us an inheritance. This is why we are saved, because he blesses us. MacArthur says regarding this passage, the mark of salvation is always the same. It is manifest righteousness. And in this particular case, it is the manifest righteousness revealed in one area, and that area is love. Love. Selfless love. See, that love flows from the Father down to us, and then, in turn, we act out on that love and pour it out into others what the Father has so freely given to us. Jesus mentions these six different acts of love here in verse 35 and 36. He says, I know you are my sheep because you have done these acts of love to me. His kingdom is for those that love the Lord, not just with empty words, but those that are moved to act on their love for the Lord. It's, you can't say that you love him and, and that you've experienced his love, his saving grace, that he would redeem you from your, your sin and then turn a blind eye to those around you. It's not these works that save you, but they identify you. These six acts of love aren't an exhaustive list of needs that, that needed to be met. It's not, a, it's not a checklist. These were just six common needs of the early church that could be easily met by fellow believers. He's telling us, I don't expect you to create and to, to do these great miracles or great works. He's saying meet real and tangible hurts that we can still minister to today. And I know here in America that a lot of these needs that Jesus mentioned are met but there are many other needs and there are many other hurts. And Jesus is telling us, you demonstrate to me that you are blessed by my Father because you meet the needs of my brothers and sisters. And this is that very point that James is reiterating in James chapter 2, verses 17 and 14, when he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warm and filled, 
without giving them the thing needed for the body? What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What he's saying is it's empty. It's hollow. It never existed. What James is reminding us here is that neither empty words or works or acts of love that save us, but latter, but it's the latter that indicate that we have an authentic salvation, that we love because we are loved by the Father, that those that are the sheep can't sit by and let the needs of those around them go unmet. It's not in their character anymore. It's not who they are because they have been made a new creation in Christ and all these actions of love have become a byproduct of their new self in Christ. So we see now that love is a byproduct. That's the second point. Look how they answered the king in verse 37. It's a remarkable response. It says the righteous will answer him. Who answers him? Those who do good deeds for social media likes? Social justice warriors? No. So who answered him? It's the righteous. Notice, this is not a title that they gave themselves. This is a declared righteousness. This is real righteousness. This is righteousness that has been imputed to them. In other words, righteousness that was never theirs, but it was given to them. We are reminded that the reason that these people do good works is because they are made righteous in Christ. And that this is the byproduct of that miracle. It is righteousness. It is the blessed of the Father. It is the inheritors of the kingdom. It is the predetermined and foreordained who demonstrate their righteousness in good deeds. Just look at their answer to the king. In verse 37, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? They don't even realize what they've done because it's just who they are now. It's because they've been changed and they've been made a new creation in Christ that they go and do these works, not so they can make some religious checklist to say, look, Lord, I'm good enough to get into heaven. That's not what they did. So you say, I've, I've never met anybody who was naked so that I could put clothes on them. But if I did, I would. See, that's the byproduct. But maybe you've met somebody with another need. You have met, have you met that need? That's how you examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. This is the test at the end. Romans 2, 6 through 7 says, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who practice in well-doing, oh, sorry, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. You see, he doesn't say the ones who did the big things. He doesn't say the ones that hold big meetings, the ones that do big miracles and do all these things and have an awesome ministry. He says it's to those who by patient and routine well-doing. It's just the goodness of life that flows out daily, the faithful discharge of humble duty and the day-to-day -day things that demonstrate genuine salvation. You see, basically, saved people, redeemed people, righteous people, 
People who belong to the Father display the Father's characteristics. When Jesus came into this world, he did the same. Paul says to us in Galatians, in verses 5, 22 through 24, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, kindness, goodness, fruitfulness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. And those that belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. These are the characteristics that become a byproduct of a true walk with the Lord. But what's the flip of that? What, is, what, are, what are the goats look like? So that's we, we know that's what sheep look like. But in Galatians 5, just before that, in 5, 19 through 21, Paul clearly lays out those characteristics of goats. He says, Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, and as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. Paul's not teaching us anything new that Jesus hasn't already warned us about. The inheritance is for the sheep, not for the goats. These characteristics are clearly a byproduct of the flesh and a mark of a goat. You know, the true Christian is going to read that and say, oh God, I failed. And if, if you, you feel that way and you, you look in your heart and you examine yourself, then maybe you do belong with the group. It is good that we look at our own lives and we see if love has become a byproduct of it or not. It's the fruit of my spirit love or, it, or is it enmity? And for me, if I really want to examine myself and know the truth, I can always ask my wife. She doesn't hold back. But praise God that, that he would give us the church body. He would give us a helpmate that could help with accountability and say your life isn't reflecting the fruit of the Spirit. It's reflecting your flesh. Repent. Wake up. The king is coming. So ask yourself, have I met the basic needs of my fellow brothers and sisters or not? I feel like most here, I would say, yes, I have tried to meet the needs of others, but I have fallen woefully short. I love the brethren, but sometimes I can become insensitive I can become distant. My heart can become hard. Lord, you don't understand. I live in America where there are programs to help those in need. There's people for that and the government and all these things. It's hard to meet these basic needs, Lord. But John, who carefully listened to Jesus explain this, tells us in his letter in 1 John verses three, or chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, he says this, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, 
How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Loving others is an inescapable characteristic of the sheep. It is never a checklist that we must follow to earn our way into heaven because we did enough good, good deeds to tip the scales in our favor. But it is the truth of our changed character, our changed life, that because he first loved us, we, by our new nature, love others. And this new nature of love is a confession of our love for the king. Brings us to our next point. That is, love is a confession. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So remember, they don't, they don't even know what the king is talking about. Who, who, how did we do this? We haven't seen you, Lord. You haven't walked with us. We, we, don't, we haven't been able to physically minister to you. I don't understand, Lord. And that's where he answers them. You did it to the least of these my brothers. You did it to me. So who are his brothers? Well, Hebrews 2, 11 and 12 says he is not ashamed to call us who believe his brothers. In this context, his brothers are simply other Christians, those that have been adopted into the family of God. I believe he is saying, he is simply saying this, whatever you do to meet the need of a fellow Christian, you do to me. Paul tells us this, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That's 1 Corinthians 6.17. And then in Galatians 2.20, he says, I, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, we are one with Christ. We have a, a unity in Christ. Christ dwells within us. Paul clearly identifies and teaches that we are one again and again and again and that we are in Christ, and that Christ is in us. Christ is in his people. What is done to me as a Christian is done to him. He is so intimately identified with me. When you receive another believer, when you open your arms and you meet their need and you embrace them and you take them in and you strengthen them and you encourage them and you help them or whatever it is you do, when you love them, you not just do it to that person, but you're doing it to Christ. That's what he's saying. Whatever you do to another believer, you do it to Christ. That's the bottom line. This is the simple truth that the Lord is telling us, that your love for my brothers is a confession of your love for me. Whatever you do to a believer, you do to Christ. It's that simple. Matthew 10.40 tells us the truth. Whoever receives me, whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. When you open your arms to a fellow believer, you are receiving Christ. And when you are receiving Christ, you are receiving the Father whom Christ represents. It's a wondrous thought. What you do to another believer is that what you do to Christ. 
And so he says to those that are gathered on his right hand, who are chosen of the Father, his choice, his sovereign grace, his election, his redemption, and his imputed righteousness has caused you to confess or demonstrate the love of God to the people of God. Notice that the verbal confession of both the righteous and the cursed is the same. So the righteous and the unrighteous alike say the same thing. They try to say the same thing. Lord, when? When did we see you? Matthew, 20, Matthew 7.22 warns us that many on that day, which day? This day, the day of judgment. This is the day that, he's, that Jesus was talking about back in Matthew 27. They will confess to the Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. And he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They confess all these great works and miracles and, and all these things that they have done, but they confess no love for Christ or his brothers. Their confession is what they had done for the Lord, like he owed them something. They had sought to do great and mighty works in the eyes of man and in the eyes of in their own eyes, declaring their false self-righteousness. Jesus makes this abundantly clear in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from my Father who is in heaven. You'll be put on my left-hand side. You are a goat. That's what he's saying. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. When? On that day, this day, the day of judgment, that every man and woman will face. All nations will stand before him and stand under him, and he will judge them righteously. Jesus, the righteous, righteous judge, exposes the blatant hypocrisy of their confession. In verse 42 and 43, what does he say? He says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you refused to clothe me. Sick and in prison and you refused to visit me. In other words, you have never demonstrated the love of God, which is the mark of the manifestation of his presence. You have, you have never revealed a changed life. You have never shown love for his brothers. He is, he's not talking about the fruit of human kindness, but rather that you never gave away yourself to meet the needs of other brothers and sisters. That you would never deny yourself like he tells us over and over again. Deny yourself. Because what is it to gain the world if you lose your soul? Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him. But you can't even love 
your brother or your sister and meet a simple need. There's been no confession of love. And what do they say to him? Well, wait a minute, Lord. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? I haven't seen you. You're not here. How can I do these things to you? Why, if we would have known you around, of course we would have loved you. Of course, if I would have known you were coming, I would have been prepared and had a will. Of course, if I knew you were coming back, I would have been a good steward of the talent you gave me, Lord. That's the same confession that's being played out here. They're trying to confess now that we love you. And look at all these great things that we did for you. We prophesied and we cast out demons. Look how great we were for you. Doesn't that count for anything? And Jesus answers in verse 45. And he tells them, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. In other words, you refused to confess or demonstrate your love for me by denying yourself and caring for those whom I care for. Those that are unified to me by the Holy Spirit. So when I was right in front of you, you did nothing. Never with proper motive, never with a heart that confesses God, did you care for your brothers and your sisters. So as we kind of come to the, the conclusion here of, of this sermon, of, of his sermon on, on the, this discourse, we have seen that people are saved because they were chosen by God, but cursed because of what they did not do. So understand that we are saved because we are chosen by God, but cursed because of what we do not do. Sheep are saved because they are blessed by the Father, chosen before the foundation of the world to an inheritance. Goats are cursed because of what they don't do. If you remember the virgins, right? They didn't, they didn't say, and the five virgins went into the wedding and five were shut out for being abhorrent, for being immoral, for being ugly, for being gross, for being evil, for being wretched sinners. No, it wasn't what they did that left them out. It's what they didn't do. They didn't get any oil. The point there was that they didn't have oil. It was something that they didn't have. It was something that they didn't do. They refused to be prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. It's not something they did that damned them. It's something that they didn't do. There's nothing in terms of sin no matter how gross that sin is that results in your damnation. It's what you don't do. It's the failure to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same for the servant. The third one who got one talent, it wasn't what he did, it's what he didn't do. He, didn't, he just buried it and paid no attention to it, and that damned him and sent him to outer darkness, Jesus tells us. The virgins weren't abhorrent. They were just negligent. And the servant wasn't immoral. He just did nothing. And the people are damned to hell by what they didn't do. And what 
they didn't do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the absence of righteousness. It is the absence of the love of God that comes through faith in Christ. It is the absence of these kinds of deeds that demonstrate righteousness to confess God's love. It is the presence of their sin of unbelief. It is the absence of faith. Jesus brings this discourse to an end with a warning. Yes, he's coming. When is he coming? We don't know the exact moment. So men should be ready at all times because irreversible judgment will occur when he comes. And on one hand will be sheep who have embraced the Savior and been made righteous and have received the love of God which they manifest. And on the other hand are the goats not made righteous, not professors of the love of God, therefore unable to manifest it. They are set apart. The sheep come into the kingdom and the goats are destroyed from the earth and into eternal punishment. That's the choice of every soul here this morning. That's how eternity will be. Two places. That's it. And every other, every person, whoever lives on the face of the earth will be in one place or the other. And it is not the issue of what deeds you do that demonstrates the course of your destination. It is that which you don't do, a refusal to deny yourself and to surrender your life to Christ that ultimately sets the final destination of your life. It's to continue in utter rebellion against the king. So the message of Jesus is, I am coming in glory to set up my kingdom, and only those that are mine will enter into my kingdom. So today is the day of salvation because the king is surely coming again. And we do not know the day, we do not know the time, and we do not know the hour. So be prepared. Be a good steward and love because you were first loved by Christ. Let us pray.